We are continuing in our series today on Paul's letter to the Philippian church, a series I've entitled Basic Christianity. As many of you know, I spent some time in China as a missionary when I was in my early 20s. It was about nine months. And there was one aspect of being abroad that I think many of you would be familiar with if you've been abroad for some time, and it kind of surprised me, and it was how much I thought about and how much I talked to others about being an American citizen. That was just surprising to me. The first question that people would ask me would be, where are you from? Or, you know, they would sometimes look at me and assume, you must be an American. Are you an American? And so I would be instantly, in each conversation, talking about being an American. In Chinese, the, the word for America, it's, it's the Chinese word meiguo, and it means beautiful land or beautiful country. So when I would say, yes, I'm an American, their follow-up question was often, oh, I hear it's a beautiful country. And then they would say, is it? Is it a beautiful country? And so then I'd just start talking about the beauty of America, which often led to Disney World. And then, you know, I would talk about I, being an American. I'd carry, I had to carry my passport everywhere. I had to present it often. So there was always talking, yes, I'm an American. Here's my American passport. I would see on occasion, not often, but I would see other Americans. And instantly there was like this fondness of like, wow, we're both from America. And I wouldn't feel that way like if I just saw people out here in America. But there was something about being in a foreign land and being like, hey, we're from the same land. I felt this sense of fondness uh, with others. I felt this sense of fondness when I'd walk into a, a store that sold American food. I'd be like, oh, Cheerios, I missed you. Oh, orange juice, where have you been? And so there was this fondness. So my American citizenship was a governing reality every single day. And in Philippians, Paul picks up on this idea of citizenship as a governing reality. He says in verse, chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of of the gospel of Christ. And that's literally translated, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. You see, Christians have dual citizenship. We are citizens of this world, but most importantly, we are citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says later in the letter, in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And so if you are a Christian, if you have turned from your sin and turned to Jesus, trusting in his death for your sins and his resurrection for your newness of life, if you are a Christian, you have a gospel citizenship. And it's meant to govern everything in your life. It's meant to be a governing reality for you and for me every single day. This is the country we represent. 
This is the country we want to talk about and feel fondness for, especially when we see other people that are citizens and be like, hey, we're going to the same country. We have the same citizenship. It's actually supposed to be a stronger allegiance than that of our earthly country. We are gospel citizens. And so if you have your Bible open to Philippians 1, Let's read together. What does it mean? What does it look like to be a gospel citizen? Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this great country that we get to be citizens of to be here living in the United States of America, Lord. With all the the things that can go on at times, Lord, we realize that we are free, freer than most, and blessed. Blessed, Lord, by just the privileges that we have as a country. And yet, Lord, I pray you would use your word to highlight and to draw our attention to an even greater privilege. Lord, fill our hearts with faith, with longing, and with resolution, Lord, to live worthy of this great heavenly citizenship. I pray, Lord, that it would, it would permeate us as a church, and Lord, that it would, you would help us to be winning others over to this citizenship. I pray, Lord, that you would use your word to guide us into your truth that we would love you more and more as a result. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, gospel citizenship is a gift of God's grace. There are natural-born American citizens, but there are no natural-born citizens of heaven. God takes people who are not citizens who are rebels, who are alienated by sin and deserving of his wrath, and he applies the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. He takes on their sin and puts it on Jesus. He rescues them and atones for them and implants a new heart in them and gives them a new citizenship. That's that's what happens at conversion. Conversion is the impartation of a heavenly 
citizenship. And so, church, it is a gift of God's grace. In the verses we just read, this grace calls for something. This grace doesn't just leave us as we are. It leads to changed lives. Look at verse 27 again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. So we're not meriting this citizenship, but we are responding to it. We're responding as those God has graciously made and called to be citizens. And so Paul is writing to the Philippian church. He's calling them to this citizenship and this life that accords with it. And that's what God is doing through his word for us this morning. He's calling us to be reminded of our citizenship and to think about and call us to lives worthy of it. Paul actually spends the rest of the letter unpacking this main idea. What it looks like, what it doesn't look like, what we sh- how should we should act, how we should not act, what we should believe. He boils it down to a single focus with this word, Only, only this one thing, this one focus, if you and I are citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you and I have been saved by Jesus' death and his resurrection from the dead, and he is our substitute, if, if all of this is true, if we have a heavenly home, this one thing we must attend to, live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This one thing should drive us. If you are to remember one thing, may it be you represent your king. If you're to have one task on your task list every day of every week, may it be this thing. I represent a heavenly home. In all that I say, in all that I think, in all that I do. Sinclair Ferguson, in that book we've recommended various Sundays, and I think there's more copies for sale out on the desk. He says, our lives should be consistent with the gospel, living illustrations of the gospel's power. Now, certainly... Church, anytime we read something like that, it at least goes through my mind, perhaps it goes through your mind, we fall short of this every single day. There is no day that I live perfectly as a citizen of heaven. There's no day you do as well. We're prone to sin, and yet even in that, we are called to turn. He's he's calling the church to a life consistent with the gospel, to illustrate the gospel's power. And we can do that even as we turn from sin. We're illustrating the gospel's power. So this is the one thing. So what does it look like to be a living illustration of the gospel's power, to behave as citizens worthy? Well, I see at least five things in this passage. First, gospel... Gospel citizenship calls for sincerity. Sincerity. 
It says in verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm. Now recall, Paul is in prison. He's likely in Rome. He doesn't know if he's ever going to get out of prison and come and see the Philippian church again. And so he's calling them to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel, whether he comes to them or doesn't come to them, remains absent. You see, Paul's picking up on a a common temptation. Most people tend to act in a certain way when they know they're being watched, when someone's present with them, and they can tend to act or be tempted to act in certain ways when no one's watching. I mean, this was my experience at every job that I worked at. It was just, it was phenomenal. Like, okay, when the boss is here, the boss is around. Oh, everyone's, you know, doing stuff and they're being really busy and looking really, really involved. And then, hey, the boss went home. And then just to watch people just totally change. Oh, the regional manager's here. Oh, and now everyone ratchets it up another notch. And then, oh, he's gone. Okay, back to the status quo. Well, this is a temptation in our relationship with God. And it's, he points it out as duplicitous conduct. So he says, whether I'm present or whether I'm absent, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, this must have been a a pastoral burden for him because he brings it up in chapter 2 again. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Gospel citizenship calls for sincerity. It calls us to a genuine conduct when no one else is looking. And so, you know, church, this applies to every one of us here. This applies to every adult here. But this is also something we're seeking to train for our children, for our youth, for our young adults. How would you act if no one is watching you? If you're a Christian, really a Christian, then live like a citizen of heaven in private when no one's watching, when no one's there to applaud or to say, hey, stop that. Sincerity also raises the question, how much of what we do is connected to people seeing us? Like that's what Paul's getting at is like, so how much of like, Like if nobody ever saw or could ever know how fast I was driving, how fast would I drive? How fast would you drive? Behaving as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so there's this sincerity that he calls for in verse 27. Gospel citizenship calls for sincerity. Secondly, it also calls for steadfastness. Steadfastness. Again, verse 27, only let your manner of life 
be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Gospel citizenship calls for steadfastness. It's this standing firm. He's already mentioned, you, you've, got, you, you've got things that pulling at you, Philippians. And he mentioned earlier in chapter 1, these hypocritical believers that were teaching. He's going to mention later some opponents. There's temptations in the church presently to quarrel, temptations from the culture. And so he's like, okay, here's the deal. Steadfastness. Stand firm. You know, many of you probably know, have been to the beach during those times where there's either a riptide or just a really, you know, fast current. And it's like, I can just think of many times getting just to my knees in the water and just to stand with my feet is very difficult because the, the current's just pulling it so fast. Well, that's the picture here of standing firm. Standing firm against all the different things in our own hearts, in the culture, opponents, whatever it is that would want to pull us away. Gospel citizenship is a call to steadfastness. It's also then tied to this, it's a call, it's standing firm in something, it's standing firm in unity. Gospel citizenship calls for unity. He says, standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There are so many things that can divide the people of God. So many things. I don't know if you've ever had this thought. You know, agreeing with others would be really easy if everyone just agreed with me. (laughs) As we'll see next week in Philippians 2, the unity, this oneness of mind is actually not based on your mind or my mind or someone. It's based on the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that we are rallying around and seeking unity around Christ. Philippi, as a church, had issues with unity. It was a great church. Paul talks about it as such a joy. It's a sacrificial church. There's a lot of great things going on. But he addresses this issue of unity in chapter 1, in chapter 2, and in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, he actually names two women that need to be getting along, that are at odds with each other, and he actually calls the church to help them agree. Another church, the church in Corinth, they had issues with unity. And so that's why he gives this picture of standing firm in one mind, in one spirit, because there's this pull inside you, inside me, inside of all of us to actually go towards disunity and disagreement and division. I mean, side by side, laboring for the gospel is a hard-fought reality. When he mentions that, that, it's not easy to be side by side. You know, you probably 
either seen or maybe you've participated in a three-legged race where, you know, you put your arm around somebody and you have your common adjoining side-by-side leg tied together and you try to run, well, that works great as long as you are in tandem with one another, in sync, harmony, side-by-side. And that's, that's the picture that is given by Paul here as he calls for unities. Like, you're a citizen. They're a citizen. Pursue that unity. Pursue that oneness of mind. Pursue that harmony. Church, we have a glorious mission. The way we've articulated it in our church is we exist to love God, love one another, and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And we get to do this side by side with one another. We do it side by side with churches in our city. We do it side by side with the other churches of sovereign grace. It's a shared mission, but it only works if we pursue that unity, guard that unity, work at that unity. The next presidential election cycle has the potential to divide Christians. Oh, you don't vote like I vote? Sorry. Young adults and parents can see things differently. Oh, you don't, you don't see that the way I see that? Let's divide. We can divide over how money is spent. We can divide people with our words. Proverbs and Psalms talk about the power of words to divide. Gossip is sharing true things about another person out of a bad heart. And gossip divides. Slander is sharing false things out of a bad heart. Slander divides. I mean, there's just so many things. Little itty-bitty preference things and big issues that we can say, this is a hill to die on. And these things can divide us. And so this is where Paul comes in and he says, yeah, are you a citizen of heaven? Pursue unity. Rally around the Lord Jesus Christ. Find the common ground with brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to do everything in our power, church, to seek peace, to overlook offenses, to get the log out of our own eye, to extend forgiveness, to speak well of others, to be peacemakers, to lay down our rights like Jesus laid down his as he became a man and took our place. Like we're, we're not the, the people who came up with this unity thing. It, it's God unifying us to himself when there was every reason for him not to. You know, I'm reading a book right now on how the Bible came into the English language. Just kind of what was going on at the time and in the world as the Bible came into language and so, uh, English. And some of you are aware of God using a man by the name of William Tyndale. And what I learned recently was that Tyndale, when he was translating the Bible into English, he had to invent words that he was like, I don't think there's a word that exists in English for this concept that I'm seeing in the scriptures. And so he invented words. He invented the word Passover. That was William Tyndale. He invented the word scapegoat. 
Just, you know, as he's going through the Old Testament, he's like, okay, this goat, that the sins are put on this goat, and then it's, it's banished. He, he came up with that word. Well, when he came to the idea of that you would have a sacrifice that then restores a relationship, he came up and invented the word atonement. Atonement, at one meant, bringing oneness through sacrifice. And it shows up now in our Bibles, we're used to all of these words, we're used to the word atonement, Eight, over 80 times in our Bible, God pursued peace with us. God brought us near by the blood of his son. God united us to himself at great cost to him. And so then he calls us, hey, preserve unity, pursue unity. Gospel citizenship calls for unity. So it calls for sincerity, calls for steadfastness, calls for unity. And in the next verse, gospel citizenship calls for boldness. Boldness. It says, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So Paul says here, not frightened in anything. What do we have to be scared about? Well, Paul's in prison. Paul got opposed. People are going to oppose the Philippians. People are going to oppose you because they oppose Jesus. There's going to be people that oppose the church in general. There's going to be people that oppose our local church. And he says, don't be scared. Don't be afraid. Gospel citizenship calls us to this, this boldness, this fearlessness. Oh, church, and I just... As, as I come to this, I just realize how applicable is this today for us? There, it, it seems freedom of religion in our country is shrinking. And unless something drastic happens or changes, it's going to get harder to be a Christian than it was 20, 30, 50 years ago. But our citizenship calls us not to be frightened by that. Because no one can take away our eternal hope in Jesus Christ. What what is most in danger is not what is most important. Our eternal citizenship is never in danger. No matter how much opposition multiplies. D.A. Carson in his um, Philippians commentary. He he just draws out this fascinating and, and sobering detail. He says, missiologists who track these things tell us that the greatest period of gospel expansion has been in the last century and a half. That same century and a half has witnessed more Christian martyrs than the previous 1,800 years combined. So that means more Christians... More people have become Christians in the last 150 years than ever before. 
But in the last 150 years, more people have died for their faith than if you combine 1,800 years of church history. Martyrs. Like this is something you're not going to hear in the news. They, they, don't, they don't broadcast this really on any network station. Hey, more people are becoming Christians than ever. You don't hear that. That's really good news. But then more Christians are dying for their faith than ever. You just realize God is doing something. God is at work saving sinners. God is reconciling people to himself. And more and more people are willing to die for it. And so don't be intimidated. Don't don't let other things take your focus. Like America in 2023 when you have this gospel citizenship. He says not frightened in anything by your opponents. And then lastly, gospel citizenship calls for a willingness to suffer. Calls for a willingness to suffer. Verse 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had And now hear that I still have. So Paul gives the reason why Christians should not be frightened by their opponents. And he says, oh, the reason involves two gifts. Every Christian, every gospel citizen has been given two gifts. And the first is faith. He says, it's been granted to you. That is, it's the word to give. It's been given to you that you should believe in Jesus. God gives the gift of faith. That's why a person believes in Jesus. No one would believe in him left to ourselves. None of us look at him and say, oh, you're glorious, you're trustworthy. No, we we don't see that. He has to give us this gift of faith so that we place our faith in Jesus to save us. Faith is a gift. This is why we believe in God's sovereignty in salvation. He chooses who he's going to save and he gives them this gift of faith. And oh, church, it is a precious gift. But the second gift in this list is a little more surprising. It's the gift of suffering. Yes, I just said that. The gift of suffering. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He mentions two gifts, and the second is suffering. The gift, God didn't just give you the gift of belief, of faith. He also gave you, as this little package has your name on it, the gift of suffering. Now, perhaps you're like me. Yes, please, to that first gift. No thank you to that second gift. I mean, I, w- I would almost expect him to say that it's Satan. Uh, tormenting from Satan. That's why we suffer. Something God would actually keep from us. Lord, keep this away from me. Not give it to me with wrapped and with my name on it. He's given the gift of faith. He's given the gift of suffering, though. That's, a, that's what he says. 
And church, we, we come to something that's absolutely basic to Christianity, and that is suffering is a gift. As we suffer with Jesus. And so I just ask you today, what, what do you think about that? The goal in life is not to avoid suffering at all costs. It's not to then say, I'm suffering and point our finger and blame God. Why? How could you do this? He promises it. He calls it a gift. The goal is as we behave citizens worthy of the gospel, it will inevitably lead to suffering. This is the common message in almost every New Testament book. Jesus said in Matthew 10, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, which is like calling Jesus the devil, how much more will they malign those of his own household? And this, this is the logic. If Jesus was called all of these nasty things, if Jesus suffered, and we follow Jesus, that's going to splash onto us. It's given to us. We're going to suffer. He says, Paul says in his final letter to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All you have to do is just desire and live as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ, and you will suffer for it. You will be persecuted. So then Peter adds his voice. 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And we were singing that song about God letting his kingdom come. There's a line in there, Lord, use us as you want, whatever the test. Really? What, what if you lose all your friends at work? What if you lose your job? What if, it, what if it causes division in your family? Lord, use us as you want, whatever the test. What, what's in that box, Mark, suffering with your name on it? Do you really want to find out? Lord, use us as you want, whatever the test. And yet, page after page of the New Testament scriptures Our gospel citizenship calls us to a willingness to suffer. We're not suffering all by ourselves. We're not actually losing anything ultimately. We're gaining Christ. We're with Christ. We're actually sharing in chapter 3. He's going to get into this of sharing in Christ's sufferings. So when you and I, when you and I share with others about Jesus, when you and I live godly lives and take flack for it, when you and I are mocked, and insulted and opposed. Remember, this was a promised gift. It has been granted to you. It has been granted to me for the sake of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The only way 
To avoid suffering, church, please hear this. The only way to avoid suffering is to be disobedient. Which is why he calls us to this worthy life aligned with the gospel. So our goal should not be to fit into the in crowd. Our goal should not be to be liked by everyone or not to ruffle any feathers. I used a phrase a couple years ago in a sermon, winsome weirdos. Now, if you remember that at all, it's like, okay, we're, we're strange. We're aliens. We don't fit in. We don't belong, but we're winsome. Oh, how we long for other people to become citizens of heaven, citizens of the gospel. And so we don't bend to their ungodliness, but we represent our king. We represent our country to them. We tell them about a land and a king and a salvation that we know they need. So let me end with two questions. Where is your citizenship? Don't, don't be too quick to answer that. Don't assume you're a gospel citizen because you came to church today. Because you heard a sermon on gospel citizenship. Because you're not as bad of a person as you could possibly be. But ask yourself, am I a gospel citizenship? Are you a Christian? One who has turned from sin and turned to Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. If you are not a gospel citizen, that is your most urgent matter today. Because I'm talking about a country and a home and a belonging that is not yet yours. And so I would just encourage you to not rest, but make that your most urgent matter. And if your citizenship is in heaven, church, if you're a gospel citizen, rejoice in that. Glory in that. Glory in everything God did to make that possible for you. Be reminded today that as a dual citizen, your citizenship in heaven is the far greater citizenship. I mean, listen, these are some of the scriptures on this. Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. Or Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's the first question. Where is your citizenship? And the second question is, are you behaving as a citizen worthy of the gospel? It's commanded It's the main command. It's what what all these other parts of Philippians are going to unpack and help us to see. Are you behaving as a citizen worthy of the gospel when no one is watching? Not mom, not dad, not your spouse. No one's watching. Are Are you a citizen? Behaving as a citizen worthy of the gospel. Is it marked by that unity with other citizens? Is it marked by boldness? Are, are you living out your, your citizenship bold among those who even oppose you, willing to suffer, willing to take flack, willing to be opposed and to do that with joy? May we take this command and may we take our citizenship 
as gospel citizens, may we take this to heart. If I can invite the worship team to please return. I want to end with an exhortation by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite old dead guys who loved Jesus and is now a live citizen of heaven. And he encouraged his church in this way. He said, brothers and sisters, today I exhort you to holiness, not by the precepts of the law, not by the thunders from Sinai, not by the perils or punishments which might fall upon you if you are unholy, but by the privileges to which you have been admitted. By the honorable citizenship which has been bestowed upon you, I beseech you to let your citizenship be in heaven, and I urge you that I, and I urge that most prevailing argument that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And therefore, we should be as men and women who watch for our Lord, diligently doing service unto him, that when he comes, he may say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. We must do our utmost while we are here to bring men to Christ, to win them from their evil ways, to bring them to eternal life, and to make them with us citizens of another and better land. For to tell the truth, we are as recruiting sergeants of heaven. We are here to give men the enlisting money, to bind upon them the blood-red colors of the Savior's service, to win them to King Jesus, that by and by they may share his victories after having fought his battles. This is what we're called to, church. If indeed we are citizens of heaven, let us behave only this, this one thing. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do desire a heavenly mindedness about us. We do desire, Lord, that all the different ways that Christians are described of being disciples united with Christ, children of the living God, chosen and beloved, Lord, that citizens would be a governing reality for us as we go out from here today, as we interact with others, Lord, that governs our behavior, Lord, even when no one is seeing. And I, I do pray, Lord, to, to the degree that we've lost sight of that citizenship, to the degree that we have just been acting on our own. We do, Lord, want to turn back to you. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would both convict and guide and bring that help and hope that only you can bring to us, Lord. That there would be a work of your grace in our hearts as we submit to you. And we just thank you for this today. In Jesus' name, amen.